Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm really quite excited today to be speaking to Fuchsia Dunlop about her latest book, Invitation to a Banquet, the story of Chinese food that's just come out. Um, Fuchsia is a James Beard award-winning cook and writer, and this book really dives into her decades-long expertise on all things Chinese culinary culture. Uh, Each chapter examines a dish, but it really goes beyond that to think about the history of Chinese food, how food is thought about in China, and so many more things. So Fuchsia, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. We're very glad to have you. But before we dive into the book, would you mind introducing yourself a bit and explaining how this book came to be? Well, so I'm a cook and food writer specializing in Chinese food. Um, I became interested in China in the early 1990s. And to cut a long story short, I went to um, study there at Sichuan University um, on a British Council scholarship in 1994. And very quickly, I became distracted from my official studies and um, started learning about the local food, um, both informally. I'd, I'd been keeping culinary notebooks since I was a teenager. And I carried on writing about um, the food that I saw in the local markets and noting down recipes that were taught to me by friends and then um, studying in the kitchens of restaurants around the university. And then um, after my year at Sichuan University, sort of informally learning about Chinese food, I ended up being the first foreign student at the Sichuan Higher Institute of Cuisine uh, doing a professional chef's training course. Um, And that was the beginning, really. So I started just because I loved Chinese food and I wanted to learn how to make it and ended up being more generally fascinated and um, learning not just how to cook, but reading about the culture and talking to people about food and just trying to understand. Um, So in the last, what is it, maybe 30 years, I have now, this is my seventh book. And um, this one, Invitation to a Banquet, comes after a few cookbooks, um, which you could say is my main work. But I wanted to go more deeply into the meaning of Chinese food and other questions about what it is and how it's been perceived in the world um, more than you can do in a cookbook, because in a cookbook, you're you're limited by the sort of framework of, of recipes, really. Um, and so that's why I wanted to do another narrative book. And um, so what I'm trying to do with Invitation to a Banquet is, is ask, really, you know, what is Chinese food and how did it, what, what makes it Chinese and how it's been misunderstood and um, how it's been understood, misunderstood, stereotyped um, in the West and really how we can all appreciate it more and through it, I suppose, China. So I kind of looked at it historically, materially, technically, and a bit sort of emotionally, philosophically. It's a fabulous book. Um, That was a great introduction. Thank you so much for starting us off kind of with all of those threads to then pick up. Um, I'd like to start, I think, with this 
the perception and misperception. And you talk about this uh, throughout the book, but one of the sentences I think jumps out is the idea that Chinese food has been a victim of its own success. Can you take us through what you mean by this? Well, I think that Chinese food was one of the earliest international cuisines to take root all over the planet. I mean, there are Chinese restaurants everywhere, in every country, practically in every small town. Um, But it took root at a time when um, there were many constraints on Chinese food. For example, in America, which is where I suppose the most widely understood type of Chinese food with the sort of um, sweet and sour flavors, the chow mein and chop sueys um, came came into being really. Um, so it was created by immigrants from one region of China, the Cantonese South, and often just from a very small part of the Cantonese South of China. Um, it was developed as a tool for economic survival in often hostile conditions. You know, the early immigrants in in America faced racism, actual the Chinese exclusion laws, which which made it very difficult for them to do anything but work in catering or laundries, which is one of the reasons why they dominated these these industries. Um, So it was made by Cantonese um, cooks, usually not trained chefs, um, and their customer base was normally not Chinese people. And also they would have had limitations on the ingredients that um, they could get hold of. Many Chinese restaurants in America were, um, they weren't in Chinatowns. They were stranded in mainly white communities without a Chinese, you know, without many Chinese shops and so on. And so American Chinese food developed with these constraints as something that was affordable, not too challenging for people who weren't Chinese, no bones and shells, no difficult textures, um, and with very appealing flavors, um, lots of fried food, lots of sweet tastes, and so on. And so it was a huge, and is a huge success. I mean, everyone loves Chinese food all over the place. Um, But it then, I think, got stuck in this you know, having developed at a time when conditions were very different, um, people's perceptions of Chinese food have been a little bit frozen, um, seeing it as being either cheap or middle brow, but not as a very sophisticated cuisine. Um, And I, I think so many people feel that they know Chinese food based on what they've tried in the West, and yet it's so unrepresentative of what Chinese people themselves actually eat. So that's what I mean when I say it's a victim of its own success. It was a formula that really worked and still worked, but it was just a poor representation of one of the world's great culinary cultures, um, which is more of a continent than a country with so many different regions, with this vast range of produce, and with a very... Um, sort of creative, um, technically diverse, ingenious, thoughtful, playful cuisine. Um, And so little of that has filtered through into Western perceptions of Chinese food. I should say, I think that's beginning to change, certainly from a regional point of view, because in the last 10 or 20 years, just for example, Sichuanese food has really arrived on the map with a bang. in America, Britain, all over the place. And immediately when you have Sichuanese restaurants, you can see that Chinese cuisine is not this monolith, that there are vast differences in style and flavor. So that's a start. But I think um, people in the West are still willing to spend a lot of money on Japanese sushi or a Spanish tasting menu. But people don't see Chinese food as being something that can be very grand and very sophisticated. And that's exactly um, what I think your book does so well to help dispel some of these myths. And so now that we've done a little bit of that to start off with, could you give us a brief overview of how you think through the map and the regions of all the different aspects of Chinese cuisine? Well, uh, so I suppose, I mean, China is so vast and you have everything from Siberian forests, deserts, you know, Himalayas in the north and west to tropical rainforests in the extreme south in Yunnan province. Um, So the range of available ingredients is just vast. Um, 
after about 30 years of exploring Chinese food, I'm still tasting new ingredients practically every time I go to China, which is amazing. Um, and so you, you also have different cultural influences. So in North China, it was bordering all these nomadic pasture lands, the grasslands of Inner Mongolia. Um, you've got Central Asia. And that's very much felt in northern Chinese food in the influence, for example, of um, people eating a lot of lamb and mutton, which is not eaten so much in the south. Um, and then in, in the south, you know, as I mentioned, sort of tropical Yunnan, um, the cuisine is then melting into the culinary traditions of Vietnam, Laos and Burma with similar ingredients, which are totally different um, and, you know, unrecognizable to people from northern China and completely different from their daily diet. Um, so there have been various attempts to categorize Chinese cuisine into different regions. The most um, common are to talk about four great regional cuisines where you have in the north, Shandong cooking or Beijing cooking, in the west, Sichuan food, um, in the east, the cooking of the Jiangnan region, which is known by various names, but the, the, the region around Shanghai, and then in the south, Cantonese. But there's also another scheme, which is eight great cuisines, which identifies the cooking of individual provinces. So including um, uh, Sichuan, but also Zhejiang, Anhui, and so on. Um, so these are just two of a few possible ways of carving up the country. Um, and the problem, of course, is that it's infinitely more complicated than that. Um, and, you, you know, you could look, every province will have its own special dishes. Within provinces, different areas, different towns will have not only particular notable dishes and snacks, but also often particular styles, flavorings they favor, and so on. Um, so it's important to remember that it is essentially impossible to, to, to come up with a, an entirely logical um, way of categorizing Chinese cuisine. Um, but for that reason, I think it, it is helpful to have a broad brush um, sort of to have a scheme that looks at certain differences. And for me, the four great cuisines is the most accessible and useful. Um, so with the four great cuisines, you have in the north Shandong or Beijing cuisine, and that's all about wheat as a staple food. So dumplings, noodles, breads. Um, as I mentioned, the presence of, of sheep meat is very important there and strong hearty flavors, lots of garlic and vinegar. Um, so, and this is the cuisine where you see the influence of the old Silk Road, for example. So it has many dishes and um, many, many sort of characteristics in common with um, cuisines across Central Asia. And in some cases, even as far as the Mediterranean, for example, the word mantel, which is used for steamed bread in China, is basically the same word as manta, which is various dumplings that you find in Turkey amazingly. So that's, that is a representative of the North. Um, then the other of the so-called great, full great cuisines is Sichuanese. Um, so that's all about flavor and bold and exciting combinations of flavors. And of course, the spiciness of chili and Sichuan pepper, um, which is very distinctive. So Sichuan is not the only spicy province <laughs> and chilies are used in many other regions, but Sichuan represents that sort of the emphasis on flavor. Um, and then in the east, you have the food of the Jiangnan region. So it's been associated at different times with different culinary centers. For example, Yangzhou, which was a great city until really the 20th century, very wealthy, um, the center of the salt trade. And it had a famously um, rich and discriminating kind of class of salt merchants who had mansions and private chefs and amazing dinner parties. Um, and then Hangzhou was a culinary center actually in the Song dynasty in the 13th century. Um, and Shanghai, of course, is a modern center of gastronomy. But all these places are broadly in the same, you could say, in the same region. Um, that they have lots of um, watery ingredients. 
So not only seafood from the sea, but also fresh water, things like crabs and shrimps and eels, a whole lot of very interesting water vegetables like water chestnuts and um, water shield and water bamboo, wild rice stem. Um, so these are characteristic ingredients. They also have some um, some a wonderful ham, jinhua ham, which is a bit like Spanish ham, sort of long cured, very intense in flavor. Um, and generally speaking, the flavors of the Jiangnan region are quite light and delicate with an emphasis on fine seasonal local ingredients. Um, but also uh, the Jiangnan region is the center of Chinese gastronomical writing. So many of the poets and um, that the, many of the old cookbooks, the classics written often by poets, gentlemen of letters, um, came from this region. So that represents a, a very refined and kind of literary style of cooking. And then in the South, you have Cantonese, which is the origin of American Chinese food and much international Chinese food, um, but is actually um, a, a really wonderful and um, uh, highly respected cuisine in China, and it's known for its absolute obsession with f- extremely fresh ingredients, you know, bringing a live fish to the table, lots of gorgeous seafood and vegetables, sparkling light flavors, and, and the very precise technical cooking, things like steaming a fish to the moment, you know, the absolute zenith of its perfection, or very sharp stir fries. Um, wonderful tonic soups. Um, And this cuisine, again, has very delicate flavors. Um, People in other parts of China, they say of the Cantonese, as many Westerners have said of Chinese in general, they eat anything that moves. So the Cantonese are very adventurous eaters. Um, But this very, very fresh and um, vibrant cooking. So anyway, that for me is really helpful. And of course, actually, the other thing I should say, of course, is the southern regions um, from Jiangnan, Sichuan, and, Guang, and and the Cantonese South, they all favor rice as a staple food. It's a wetter landscape suited to growing rice, whereas in the North, it's all about wheat. So I think those four categories, it, it, it's by no means exhausted, and the picture is far more complicated than that. But I think it gives you a real sense of the scale of China and um, and about the vast gulf between different regional styles. Absolutely. It really does help map that out. And notably from that description, I think some of those dishes and names of ingredients might be familiar to Western audiences. Um, but there might be some names that they that people might have expected to hear that didn't pop up, like Chasho Park or Peking Duck. And you talk about these in the book as being obviously delicious, but maybe not particularly typical for Chinese cuisine, given kind of the breadth of what you've just taken us through, can you help us understand where these dishes do fit in? Yeah, well, I suppose that, I mean, they're very notable Chinese dishes. So cha shao pork is a Cantonese speciality and Peking duck, of course, from the capital Beijing. Um, but the reason that I said that they're not really typical is that um, one of the absolute distinguishing characteristics of Chinese cuisine for about 2,000 years since the Han Dynasty, is that the Chinese have tended to cut their food, their ingredients, into small pieces and eat the food with chopsticks. Um, And this is something that um, you find all the way through Chinese history, really from these ancient gung soups, which were made of ingredients cut into small pieces and combined or, or, or on their own in great soups, right up to the modern stir fry, where a typical supper dish today might be um, a piece of pork cut into slivers and stir fried with a vegetable like maybe bamboo shoots or Chinese chives or something like that. Um, so most Chinese food is made, the, the art of cutting is fundamental because the food is first cut and then it is cooked. So the only time that you really get whole chunks of meat on a Chinese dinner table, you know, as we do in, say, Britain with pork chops or roast chickens and stuff, um, is when the, the food has been cooked so that it's soft enough to tear apart with chopsticks. You just don't have knives on a traditional Chinese dinner table. So having said that, the Chinese do have some dishes where you have a whole 
you know, like a roast duck, as in Peking duck. Um, but the interesting thing about the dish like that is that it is um, never really cooked at home. Um, it is cooked by specialists with special duck ovens. And char shao pork as well is something that you, you tend to buy from a specialist cook shop or a restaurant. You don't make it at home because most Chinese homes, until really the arrival of fitted kitchens in the last say, 10 or 20 years, most Chinese homes do not have ovens. You know, they, they just don't. Baking and um, roasting is just not part of the repertoire. So cooking is done um, on in woks or pots or steamers, but on a stove and not inside it. Um, and so roasting in, in sort of China is seen as being, I think, a kind of very um, sort of archaic, almost cooking method, you know, that people cooked directly on a fire before they had cooking pots and stoves, um, which then became, you know, the way that people cooked. And, um, and in China, in Chinese history, it was mainly um, there were certain roasts that were made on ceremonial occasions, like, you know, you have the suckling pig, which Cantonese people make for grand occasions today. But they're very exceptional in, in, the, in the cooking style. Um, in North China, in Beijing, the Manchus, the, the last Qing dynasty, the people who ran China, you know, for several hundred years, they used to eat a lot of mutton and they would eat huge chunks of boiled meat, which they would cut up with a knife. Um, during the meal. Um, and in fact, members of the Manchu ruling class during the Qing dynasty, they carried around with them little eating kits, which had both a knife and a pair of chopsticks. And you can still see them in museums and antique shops today, because the Manchus, they had their um, their ancestral style of cooking, which was big hunks of meat that you cut with your personal knife, and Chinese cooking, Han Chinese cooking, which was this food that was transformed with the knife and cut into small pieces. So it's a very vivid illustration of, of this difference. And um, so, yeah, I, I was thinking in the course of writing the book, trying to look at what really, what really makes Chinese food Chinese. And this emphasis on cutting is absolutely fundamental. And interestingly, many of the early European and, and American um, commenters on Chinese food, commentators on Chinese food, many of them said they noted that all the food, all the food was cut into small pieces. And they often said, and we didn't have a clue what we were eating. <laughs> um, and this, I think, may have fed into some of the negative stereotypes about Chinese food and the sort of Western apprehension about being fed weird ingredients, this idea that with Chinese food, you have something cut into slivers, and you don't know what it is. It's not recognisable, like a pork chop. <laughs> um, so, yes, so that's why cha cha pork and picking duck, despite being absolute classic dishes in the Chinese repertoire, are not representative of, of the broad sweep of Chinese cooking. I'd love to go then from the less representative, though iconic, to also iconic, but maybe to an outside perspective, not understood for kind of how important it actually is. Can you tell us about the food item that is you consider the quote cultural and emotional center of the meal? Oh yeah, well, so, so that's your staple grain. So um, in Chinese, the word fan means staple grain. So um, it means different things to different people. I mean, it's usually translated into English as rice, but cooked rice, but it can also mean millet in the north. It means whatever your staple grain is, and that's different in, in northern and south China. So um, you can see in the Chinese language that to have a meal is to chi fan, which means to eat cooked grain, or a restaurant is a fan guan, like a place for eating fan. So actually, the, the fundamental, you know, what food is about is staple grain. And throughout Chinese history, um, staple foods were revered, they were offered um, in sacrifice to gods and ancestors. Um, the emperor himself used to do a ritual ploughing every spring, um, and plant sacred millet for the sacrifices. So the emperor was in some symbolic sense himself a farmer of staple grain. The Chinese were agricultural people, unlike the nomads 
for example, in the north, who beyond the Great Wall, who were herders, but the Chinese were farmers and the grain was the center of the diet. And so in sort of Chinese conception of what a meal is, a meal is a staple grain. So typically in the south, steamed whole grains of rice, but in the north, it can be noodles or breads or, you know, buns, this kind of thing. Um, uh, and, um, And with it, you have your cai, which means literally vegetables, but also means dishes, accompanying dishes. And the purpose of the accompanying dishes, whatever they are, meat, fish, vegetables, is to xiafan, is to send the rice down. Um, so really, you, you can't have a, a, a Chinese meal without, well, if in the South, rice, that is the meal. And everything else is a kind of relish to go with the rice. Um, and it is interesting that um, I think uh, Westerners in Chinese restaurant, they, the restaurants, they often want to eat fried rice or fried noodles, chow mein, because I guess they seem more exciting than the plain steamed rice. But I think the whole point of the plain steamed rice is that it is plain and it's the background. It's the, the background on which the colors of the meal are sketched. It's meant to be plain. It's meant to be nourishing. And then you use the dishes to season your rice, to send the rice down. Xia fan. I think that will perhaps help um, with menu selection for some listeners going forward. And I think we'll probably talk about ordering at a restaurant in a moment. Um, But before we get to that, I'd love to stay on this topic of kind of key foods, key dishes to understand all of these different pieces. So I'd love to ask you about gung um, and why this dish, quote, arguably says more about the history and character of Chinese cooking than any other dish on the menu. Right. Yeah. So the gung is a kind of soupy, a sort of soup stew. So in China, there are two main words for soup. There's gung and tang. And a tang is a sort of light broth in which you may have ingredients floating, but it's mainly about the broth. And a tang is a more substantial kind of soup. So a bit like the, I mean, to take a very familiar example, the, the sort of sweet corn and chicken or crab soup or hot and sour soup that you get in Chinese restaurants, that is a gung rather than a tang. It's thick with ingredients which are cut into small pieces. Um, so the gung in the ancient past was a sacred dish that was offered to the gods and ancestors at uh, sacrificial occasions with um, the cereal foods, the grain foods, the fan, um, and other dishes. Um, But um, it was a dish that was really long before stir frying um, became popular. It was the main dish with which people accompanied their fan in China. So not only did it have a sort of sacrificial status as something that you offer to the gods and the scent of the simmering ingredients would, would go up and, um, you know, um, sort of feed the gods and the ancestors, um, but it was also an everyday dish. Um, so with the invention of pottery, people in China began to boil and also very early on to steam their food and they would boil up ingredients in liquid and, um, the the food was often cut into small pieces and it was again pretty early on eaten with chopsticks so with this soupy stew although it's may appear to be far removed from a typical chinese meal uh, chinese meal today with um lots of um wok cooked dishes um it actually shows you a lot already of the characteristic of chinese food so firstly this cutting up of food into small pieces and eating it with chopsticks and chopsticks um, may have been favored as a cooking implement because they were so good to uh, at picking food out of a, a very hot um pot or, or pot of soup this is um an argument of Edward Q. Wang, who wrote a wonderful cultural history of chopsticks. Um, So, um, and the other thing is that when you cut your food up into small pieces, you can combine it in many different ways. Um, Lin Yu Tang, that great interpreter of Chinese culture for Westerners, said something like that Chinese food was 
it was about the art of mixture because for example in old-fashioned typical english cooking you would have meat and two veg you would have a piece of meat and you would have vegetables which are all kind of recognizable um, whereas with chinese food you're much more likely to take that piece of meat and those vegetables cut them into slivers and combine them into several different dishes so you, you immediately create a kind of variety at the dinner table and um Already this was happening with the gung because you can combine different ingredients cut up in a single dish. Um, and it's very interesting. This, this dish is mentioned in all the sources. Um, the poor people would eat gung made of wild vegetables. Um, the rich would eat gung made of game meats. Um, and But everyone, there's a, a quote, I can't remember which source, one of the ancient texts, but the quote saying that everyone from the lords to the, you know, the poor farmers, everybody eats gung. Um, and then it, throughout Chinese history, the gung went on being hugely important. So if you look at the um, the amazing lists of food available in the restaurants and snack shops of the city now known as Hangzhou in the 13th century, there's a, a book called Meng Liang Lu, which is an incredible description of the life of the city, but it includes lists and lists and lists of snacks and dishes. There are a great many gung made from um, all kinds of different ingredients. So this is in the 13th century. And then there's a, a very famous menu of a, um, a grand banquet in the 18th century in Yangzhou, um, which has um, all these different um, sort of courses with many different dishes. And some of them are these Manchu-influenced um, roast, roasted meats and so on. But there are also a lot of gung of these soupy stews. And um, even in the 19th century, there are descriptions by Westerners of you know, a Chinese banquet in Guangzhou and uh, you know, mentioning that most of the dishes were soups or swimming in liquid. <laughs> um, so it seems that um, these days you might have a gung like a hot and sour soup, for example, on the dinner table, but it'll just be a very... Um, you know, a, a fringe part of, of most meals, but it was actually the Chinese dish. Um, and also, interestingly, in ancient China, um, the, this idea that you would combine lots of finely cut ingredients, mix them together in a, in a dish, um, meant that the gung was used as a symbol of harmony on, and of creating harmony and balance so there were ancient sages who would use the gung as a way of describing the art of politics, um, that the politician or the emperor, that the statesman was like a cook who would season the gung, season the stew, and try and balance the different ingredients to create a sort of harmonious flavor. Um, so this dish, yes, it was important materially in Chinese diets, fundamentally important, but also symbolically and sacrificially. Absolutely fascinating kind of how many of those things um, come together and continue throughout time. So thank you for taking us through the gung. Um, I'd love to ask you almost about the exact opposite, I suppose, from stew with all the different flavors put together in this wonderful blend to raw food and dishes where very much it's not kind of all sorts of things happening at the same time necessarily why do we at least perhaps have a perception that chinese food generally avoids raw food and dishes well sort of culturally the chinese in ancient times saw themselves as civilized people who ate cooked food and the people who didn't eat, who ate raw food, were the uncouth barbarians around the fringes of the empire. And um, in fact, when I was at the chef school in Sichuan, on the very first page of our culinary textbook, um, it described this in a, in a very typical Chinese way. It described the discovery of fire and that this marked the moment when human beings went from being sort of savages. Um, plagued by sickness um, to um, the discovery of cooking enabled them to eat healthily and safely and um, it, to, to leave behind what's often described as the era of drinking blood and eating feathers, Ru Mao Yin Xue. 
um, which is a sort of stock phrase in China. So even in a cooking school textbook in the 1990s, cooking was described as really the beginning of civilization and civilized living. Um, and so there was, the Chinese have in, in that way identified themselves as a cooking people, as people who civilize their ingredients and they eat in a way that is, um, yeah, I mean, civilized perhaps is the best way to describe it. And um, so um, there are, the, in perception, so of course there are some exceptions, but but actually um, the Chinese traditionally don't eat many raw foods. There was a practical reason for this in later times because they used night soil human excrement to fertilize the fields. So that meant that eating raw vegetables, for example, there were, there were hygiene issues with it. Um, but even these days, although you have some... Um, sort of raw vegetables, often they are transformed by pickling and certainly by cutting. Um, but the idea that you just put, um, I mean, for example, the Western salad, when you just put some leaves on the table and, and dress them, is somehow, although it's become very fashionable in recent years in China, is not very characteristic of Chinese cuisine. Um, there are exceptions to every rule. And um there, for example, one ancient Chinese dish was called kuai, was um, thin slices of fish, which was eaten either raw or sometimes pickled. Um, but on the whole, food was cooked. These days, there are also in, um, for example, one of the great delicacies of the Jiangnan region is raw drunken crabs, um, which is just devastatingly delicious, actually one of my favorite foods. So freshwater crabs that are steeped in um, alcohol and seasonings and eaten raw. But they are, again, pickled, so they are semi-transformed from their raw state by a pickling process. But, um, yes, I would say that still um, quite a lot. I mean, in modern China, a really a large number of Chinese people have told me that when they visited Japan for the first time, they were disconcerted by the fact that there was so much raw food. Um, so I think it is definitely a bit of a cultural line, even in modern China. Mm. Which is really interesting to think about, given how many other aspects of Chinese uh, and Japanese cuisine are quite similar. Um, you mentioned earlier on that the cutting up of things um, and then of course putting them on rice could be one of the reasons for some of the divisions and misperceptions between Western understandings of Chinese food. Another one that you talk about in the book is the cooking method of steaming might be, quote, intimately bound up with some of the other cultural fault lines that divided China from the West. Why? <laughs> well, I suppose that I don't think anybody else in the world has, has adopted steaming as a cooking method quite like the Chinese as pervasively. So just um, as I mentioned, that the, they were steaming in China in the Neolithic age. I mean, they found pottery steamers on Stone Age, new Stone Age sites in various parts of China. Um, so it is one of the most... Um, sort of central cooking methods all the way through Chinese history to the present day. And um, steaming particularly was used for steaming cereal grains, rice and millet in ancient China. Um, but it's also these days used for every type of food. So you can steam whole, um, whole poultry, um, you can steam soups, you can steam dumplings, breads, desserts, um, any kind of dish, really, you can steam. Um, so it's a very, very versatile, um, very versatile cooking method. Um, and one of the things that's in interesting about it is that it creates very soft textures, in a way, um, very soft and gentle yielding textures. So, for example, when I mentioned the, the fault lines, one of the um, great differences actually in, in staple foods is that when the Chinese eat bread, um, they very often eat steamed breads, which are sort of soft and fluffy um, and very different from the baked breads um, eaten in the West with their very chewy crusts. And um, and I, I was reading the accounts by the first Chinese embassy to China in 1793, 
um, some very interesting accounts. And some of the people, you know, um, in the in the embassy, they um, described the food. And one of them, Aeneas Anderson, um, was really put out by the bread they were offered um, because he thought that this bread, and he described the method of steaming, that it, it seemed almost raw um, um, because of this great difference in the way that it was cooked and in the final texture. And he said that it only became palatable after they toasted it, <laughs> so giving it that more European texture and colour. Um, yes, and so, I mean, other cultures do use steamers, for example, Moroccans with couscous, but I don't think there's anywhere that that parallels China in the use of steaming as being so ancient and so pervasive. And to some visitors, so perplexing. <laughs> yes. Um, I did say earlier that I was going to ask you about ordering off at, at a restaurant, and I'd love to do that now. Um, you have this fabulous sentence in the book where you say that, quote, learning how to order well in Chinese restaurants is one of your life's proudest achievements, and that you're only half joking when you say this. Can you take us through your methodology for ordering and explain why this is such a significant skill? <laughs> well, so... In a Chinese restaurant, um, if everyone just orders the dish they fancy, it's a disaster because you'll end up with repetition of ingredients. You might have more than one person ordering something that's deep fried or sweet and sour. It just doesn't work. A Chinese meal is like a composition for the table. Um, so let's think, you know, if you're in a restaurant with eight people having a special dinner, um, there isn't an exact methodology, but I would say there are a couple of principles. Um, and really, the, the, the main principle is that you want to have as much variety as possible and to avoid repetition at all costs. Um, so you want to have a very balanced meal um, in which all the dishes on the table complement each other and they all contribute something, um, but you never get bored. And... Um, so when I talk about variety, I mean variety in every sense. So you want a variety of main ingredients. So if you have a chicken dish, then you don't want another chicken dish. Then the next one maybe will be seafood or tofu or something different. Um, if you, you want variety of color. So if you have a very deeply colored um, red braised pork, for example, which is colored by soy sauce, then you also want to have some vibrant green vegetables or just other colours, as many colours as possible, and also within dishes. So if you have a very pale fish dish, maybe you, you've got a, a wok-cooked dish with slices of fish, well, then you want to have some colour to set off that fish. So maybe you'll use goji berries or black wood ear mushrooms or a bit of golden egg pancake or something. So you want an a pleasing, aesthetically pleasing variety of colours. Um, you also want a nice variety of wet and dry dishes. So if you have something that's very crisp and fragrant and deep fried, well, you'll certainly also want something soupy and liquid. Um, and you want different cooking methods. So if you have something that is a, a, a braised stew, then maybe you also want to have a stir fry. Um, and also the, the art of cutting, as I mentioned, is very important to Chinese cooking. And you want food that is cut into different shapes. So you wouldn't want a, a dinner table where everything is cut into slivers. That would be really boring. So if you have one dish where the meat is cut into slivers, maybe the next dish, the fish will be cut into slices. And so ideally, you will just have this. It won't, there won't, it won't seem like anything contrived or effortful. But every dish will be pleasingly different and, um, and also uh, nutritionally balanced because good food in China um, is fundamentally not just, I mean, it's hugely about pleasure, but not just about pleasure. It's also about making you feel good and about health. And food and medicine, food and health have been absolutely enmeshed um, since the beginnings really of Chinese, uh, you know, certainly written Chinese culture more than 2000 years um, food and health are totally together. And um, so you want to have a menu that, that 
that looks wonderful, that satisfies all the senses, that never becomes boring. So you have a bite of something strong and then you have a bite of something light and refreshing and then you have a bite of something sweet <laughs> like this um, that never becomes boring and also makes you feel good. And um, so, yes, in order to order well, it requires some understanding of what the dishes will be like. So you need to be able to read the menu and sort of realize that this dish will be cut into slivers or this dish will be a dark color or whatever. And you need to think about uh, how they'll all work together. And so it can take a lot of time. So when I do culinary tours of China, so I'm eating with people for often two meals a day for a week or more. Um, I really have to plan to, um, to, I often get to the restaurant early so that I can really think about creating a good menu. Um, and yeah, so that's what I say. I do feel it's taken me 20 or 30 years of eating Chinese food to, um, to get to the point where I can you know, fairly confidently go and, and make a good order, even in a restaurant that I don't know, sometimes by discussing the waiter or with a waiter or someone, but try and create this harmonious variety of dishes. Thank you so much for taking us through that. Um, it's such an interesting aspect of kind of how we eat, um, not just the kind of creation of the food, but putting it all together like that. Um, given what you've mentioned in terms of kind of the different preparation techniques and the different ways ingredients can be treated, and there's such variety, could you maybe tell us about some cooking techniques and ways of treating ingredients that might seem kind of quite new and innovative in the West, but actually have quite long traditions if we look back to China? Well, yeah. So, I mean, one of the most conspicuous in a way is um, this creation of convincing imitation meat and fish and poultry from plant-based foods. So that's something which is a real craze at the moment in the West. And you have all these companies who are trying to come up with imitation mints or sausages or whatever. Um, but in China, they've been doing this since at least the Tang Dynasty um, and creating, you know, in the Song Dynasty, there were Buddhist vegetarian restaurants in Hangzhou. Um, and there was also a habit of creating imitation dishes. Um, some of them were just, you know, one dish pretending to be another, but others were plant foods pretending to be meat. <laughs> and um it's all sort of part of the ingeniousness of Chinese cooking and the playfulness um, and the creativity. So I think that um, Chinese cuisine has always been about transformation. So transformation of raw ingredients into civilized food, but also transformation of, of one thing into another. Um, at So, I mean, at a everyday level, for example, if you go to Shanghai these days, um, you can go to a sort of deli type shop and you can buy some wonderful cooked meats, cold meats, but you can also buy imitation chicken made from a kind of tofu or imitation roast duck made from another kind of layers of tofu, which are wrapped up and cooked so that they resemble roast meat. Um, and I think that, um, you know, amid all this craze for, um, fake meat foods in the West. People don't realize that this is a long Chinese, Chinese tradition. Um, and also it's part of, uh, it's a sort of sign of the intellectual pleasure of Chinese cooking. So if someone is hosting a dinner party, they also like to sort of tease and please the minds of their guests. And um, one example of this is the classic Sichuanese, an old banquet dish called ji dou hua, which means chicken tofu. Um, and here, guests are served with what appears to be freshly made tofu, just set in its liquid, in its whey. Um, but then when they eat it, they will find that the tofu has been made by um, very, very, very finely mincing and blending chicken breast, mixing it with a little egg white and seasonings and a little starch, and then setting it to a kind of curd. And that the liquid is not just the whey of the tofu, but it's an absolutely opulent soup made from chicken and ham and pork um, at what they call a gao tang, a sort of high broth or high stock, grand stock. Um, and so this playfulness um, is something that you see in the modernist avant-garde chefs of the West um, who are making dishes that surprise and delight, like the British chef Heston Blumenthal making 
English breakfast, bacon and eggs into a kind of ice cream. Um, this sort of playfulness is very much part of Chinese cuisine, especially Chinese old cuisine. And I think that that's um, quite fun to see sort of these different things going, oh, wait, what is this made out of and how is this done? Um, it's absolutely fascinating. I'd love to ask you about um, some other things mentioned in the book, moving away from restaurants for a moment. Um, you talk about the food in northern China, of course, the site of such a famous national border of the Great Wall, being nevertheless, quote, a vivid illustration of the arbitrary nature of national borders. What can we see in the food compared to the wall? Well, yeah, so the, the wall was supposedly a boundary between the Chinese and the barbarians. But actually, historically, there was a lot of intermarriage. Um, there was certainly a lot of trade. And there were even whole dynasties like the Qing dynasty, who were Manchus, like the Yuan dynasty, who were Mongols, who came from outside. So the Great Wall was a sort of physical barrier and it was also a notional one. But in fact, um, the culture and cuisine of northern China is, is very multicultural. And you really see that in the food. So there are, for example, kinds of halva which echo those of the Middle East. You get in Beijing, one traditional snack is the tangar, which is a sugar ear. And it's a sort of deep fried fritter that is soaked in syrup. And it's so like um, these sweetmeats of um, you know, India and the Middle East. Um, then also the, the combination of, of, of bread and sheep meat, which is something that you find, again, all the way across Central Asia to the Mediterranean is very much part of northern China. So... Um, in China, sometimes it takes the form of bread, like the famous Xi'an dish, Yangrou Pamo, which is soaked flatbreads um, with mutton or with beef. So you have a kind of soup with torn pieces of bread and slices of meat and a few other things like noodles, which is eaten with garlic. Um, so that's a, a, a classic Chinese dish, but um, it has this nomadic influence of the sheep meat and the flatbreads that could be taken on long journeys but here they're torn up and put into a in a soup um and um and then there are other parallels across north china this combination of wheat and sheep meat um and um yeah really a lot of sweet dishes and snacks which echo those of countries further west so I think it's just a reminder that Chinese culture, although there are some aspects of it that are very distinctively, anciently, consistently Chinese, like cutting food into small pieces, like um, fermenting soybeans and using them as a seasoning. But there are also many, many influences from abroad. Um, some of them still live on in the language. So, um, for example, during the Han Dynasty, about 2,000 years ago, a whole lot of new ingredients were coming into China along the Silk Road. And one of them was, was black pepper, because um, the native Chinese pepper was Sichuan pepper, which was known as jiao and is today hua jiao, flower pepper. Um, when black pepper came in on the Silk Road, it became known as hu jiao, which means barbarian pepper. Um, so that's still what it's called today. There are... There are various ingredients which still bear the imprint of the fact that they were foreign imports a long time ago. Which is fascinating to trace through, as you said, the language, but also the dishes themselves. Um, moving to another sort of staple in some senses in Chinese cuisine, again, especially from the outside, um, pork turns up in all sorts of dishes, um, in many places, in different cuisines throughout the country, and yet it has a contradictory social status. Can you take us through what pork means? <laughs> yeah, so pork is the ubiquitous meat of China. So in the countryside, practically every household will rear and fatten up a pig for the Chinese New Year. Um, the, the Chinese character for home is a, the sign for a pig under a roof. Um, so the pig was seen as a way of transforming waste into wealth. You know, it would eat your scraps of food and farming scraps and it would transform them into delicious meat. And, um, so, and, and really to a Chinese palate, particularly a Southern Chinese palate, but 
beef and lamb, they have rather coarser textures and coarser flavors than pork. And they require, you, you need to cook them with plenty of spices or blanch them to purify their flavors. But pork has a sort of natural sweetness. It is the finest meat and it has this amazing fat which it makes it very luscious and also when rendered into lard can be used to cook vegetables and make them more rich and delicious, for example. Um, so pork is often the centerpiece of New Year's feasts, of weddings, um, all these grand occasions. Um, so on the one sense, yes, it's really at the heart of Chinese um, folk ceremony and culture. But at the same time, it, um, it has a kind of low status because it's a common meat. You know, it's not grand like, um, like venison or shark's fins or all these very um, more exotic and rare and expensive delicacies. Pork is a kind of humble meat. So you don't tend to get pork at the centerpiece of a banquet. It's much more likely to be a steamed fish or something that has a higher social status. So, yes, there is this, this um, contradiction that it's both people's favorite meat and it's not the grandest. And I think I describe in the book, um, there's this uh, wonderful treasure in the Taiwan National Palace Museum, the Ruxingshi, the meat-shaped stone, which for me perfectly sums up this contradiction because it's, um, it's a piece of a semi-precious stone that has been, that has layers of what look like fat and lean meat and has been carefully carved to just to just bring out this resemblance to a chunk of slow cooked pork and it's presented in the museum a small you know it's a small chunk like a chunk of meat on a golden plinth so it's both a sort of very common everyday ingredient but it's transformed into an imperial treasure on a golden plinth what a fabulous example as my penultimate question, I'd love to kind of circle back, but then flip it, I suppose, to where we started um, with sort of versions of Chinese food that appeared in the West and were quite popular despite their unrepresentativeness. If we think about it the other way, what do Chinese versions of Western food look like? Oh, well, I mean, it's really hilarious because for every terrible stereotype Westerners have about Chinese food, the Chinese also have terrible stereotypes of Western food. So I have lost count of the number of people who've told me that Western food, xitan, which is described as one sort of cuisine, is which means is very simple and very monotonous. Um, you know, people have said, oh, all you eat is sandwiches and hamburgers, right? Um, so, yeah, there are lots of negative stereotypes about um, Chinese food, about Western food which just as Western stereotypes of Chinese food are based on, you know, a passing acquaintance with the kind of takeaway food, which is just <laughs> not really what most Chinese people eat. Um, but similarly, a lot of Chinese people will generalize about Western food when all they've had is American fast food. Um, so, but then again, you know, as, as mentioned, there are a lot of Western ingredients that have become absolutely part of Chinese culinary culture, most conspicuously, of course, the chili, which came from the Americas, and now you cannot imagine Sichuanese food without it. Um, but also, just as we have in the West, this kind of adapted um, form of Chinese food. Um, in China, they also have localized versions of Western food. And particularly in Shanghai and Hong Kong, where they, they had the sort of earlier Western communities and, and that they had foreigners living there and, and cooking and eating there. So in Shanghai, there are these old school, late 19th, early 20th century, so-called Western food restaurants, which serve a version of Western food that has been adapted and curated for Chinese tastes over a century and which are sort of, I mean, they are Western food, but the way they're put together and eaten is just, is very curious to a Westerner like me. So for example, in Shanghai, um, you can go to the Deda, uh, uh, what's it called? Xi Tai Shi, the Deda Western food restaurant, which was founded at the end of the 19th century. Um, and um, you can go there and have their classic dishes, which are things like 
um, a a pork chop served with they call it hot soy sauce, but it's actually a local version of English Worcestershire sauce, Worcester sauce, um, and a potato salad with a bit of sausage in it, which is a bit like a Russian cured sausage. And um, Lawson Tang, which is a Chinese version of Russian soup, which is their version of borscht. So there's no beetroot in it, but it's got cabbage and potato and beef and tomato. And so all these dishes and the way they're eaten, and they're, they're regarded very affectionately by Shanghainese people as being part of their heritage and tradition. So you go to one of these restaurants. I mean, of course, now in Shanghai, you have lots of cutting edge, modern Western chefy restaurants. But Shanghainese local people, they still go to places like Birda because it's part of their, their history, part of just, just as Americans love American Chinese takeout food. <laughs> Thank you for bringing us full circle um, now that we've seen both sides of it. Um, As my final question, this book is thankfully available. It's out. People can go read it. Is there anything you might be working on now that it's done? Oh, well, I mean, various projects on the boil, as it were. Um, Yeah, the next one will be a cookbook. (laughs) So I'll be back into recipe testing. Um, Yeah, so that's the next project. Well, I'm sure that will be fun and delicious. Um, And while you are off experimenting and writing that down, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Invitation to a Banquet, the Story of Chinese Food. Fuchsia, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much. 